Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you for joining us this week. Marianne's guest is going to be Katya Gunther, author of The Lives and Deaths of Shelter Animals, which is based on her personal experiences inside a high-intake animal shelter in Los Angeles, and not only describes her experiences in detail, but puts them in a context of how what happens to different animals is inextricably linked to human ideas about race, class, gender, ability, and species. Wow. Well, it's an academic work, ethnography. It is not terribly difficult to read, but it's very, like, it's very carefully thought out. She has a lot of theories and and ways of looking at what's going on here that really broadens the subject to so many different ideas and so many different observations about what it means to to live in our society and how really shelter animals are are just entwined in that whole system and anyway i'm saying it immeasurably worse than she will so so we'll just wait for the interview but really really interesting work and on on the flock bonus segment this week i'll be continuing my discussion with katya and as always if you're a flock member you'll get that link to the bonus segment on the Tuesday after this podcast goes up in your email, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. If you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you're a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, where we chit-chat about activism and how to deal with this upside-down world that we live in. And we speak to some inspiring guests, many of whom are recent podcast guests. So if you are a member of The Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Oh, and also, if you're in The Flock, then you can set up one-on-one conversations with me if you're interested in chatting about your activism or your veganism or things things going on in your life, email Jen at Jen at ourhenhouse.org and we'll get you set up with that. So before we get to the interview today, we have a giant piece of misinformation on last week's episode. I feel this needs immediate attention. It was correct at the time, but things have shifted. So yes, as you know, I adopted two cats. That has not changed. Uh, One of them was named Eugene and that has not changed. The other one, however, was named Francis Aloysius, and his name is now Fox for a variety of complicated reasons, which I don't really understand, but that's how it, that's how it ended up. Uh, Fox no. is my mother's maiden name, so it's a family name. He's still cute as a button, uh, and they're still both black, and and they're still both settling in. It takes so long. They're just so annoying. Like, they, they will snuggle. They both have gotten to the point where they will snuggle and purr. But if I go to pick them up, they're like, no, get away from me. Oh, ah, oh. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the saga continues. But I think Eugene and Fox are going to stick as names. I, I actually suggested Fox. I want credit where credit is due. You suggested Fox and you you plucked this kitten out of the the large number of um, animals available, pet, cats available at Pet Pride, which is where I adopted them in Victor, New York. And so, yeah, pretty much anything he does for the rest of his life is, is either to your credit or not. 
Well, also, I want to say that I got at least one DM from a podcast listener requesting photos of your cats. I don't know. They actually said that they messaged me and not you because they knew that you would probably not reply or post any photos. So (laughs) that is very cruel and and very accurate. accurate. Yeah. So I think you might need to maybe post some or at least give them give me some photos. They're not. Well, I guess I could take separate photos. They're not often in the same time place. Unfortunately, they they still have some issues between them to work out. I'm not sure what's oh, going no. on there. Well, I will I will say that my phone, which is like one of the more recent iPhones, the reason I got it was because I have a black cat and I belong to some black cat appreciation like Facebook groups and the iPhone 12 and later or more you know more recent. It's supposed to be really great at taking photos of black cats. So I got the phone when I when my other one was on the down and out. And I was like, let's try this out. I was super skeptical and like immediately took a professional level photo of my black cat. Well, I think I think that means that you are now in charge of fulfilling uh, this listener's wishes and taking pictures of the cats because I have an old iPhone and I don't believe in replacing phones until you know, there's something wrong with them. Like It's so yeah. totally fine. It's one of the ones that has the little button on the bottom. So everybody yeah, who picks so it up school. says, wow, this is like an antique. Yeah. And uh, I will, it, it probably is going to be soon because it does seem to be glitching from time to time. But I'm not going to replace it until, uh, until I have to, because that's my policy. So yeah, I don't, apparently my photos of black cats would just be this kind of like black, miasma so yeah, if you want yeah, good, it doesn't work. if we want good pictures of my my cats you're gonna have to take them i'll take care of it you got it i'll be right there after we finish recording this so i wanted to mention because i was tickled by this that i think i mentioned a few weeks ago a couple weeks ago that i wrote an article for vegnews.com on the why rochester new york is the small city why every where every vegan needs to move why it's like one of the best small cities for vegans you didn't say one of the best. Let's face it. You're Jasmine Sanger. You like hyperbole. You said the best. Hey, I don't write my own titles. The SEO person <laughs> writes that. Just to be very clear, but I do like hyperbole more than anything in the world. Anyway. <laughs> so the news picked it up. I just wanted to mention that that was so fun because like uh, the uh, local NBC News picked up the story and was like, Rochester, best city for vegans, article says. And then it like had another kind of uh, breath of life, that piece. Yeah, so, it was great. Yeah, that was super fun. And and the, the restaurants around here where you do know people were so pleased. Well, I only know people because I eat a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that was really nice. Uh, And also, by the way, a little thing I learned yesterday when I was looking around on the interwebs is that there is an independent vegan magazine based in Rochester called Chickpea Magazine. So this is not cool. I ordered a copy. I'm very excited about it. I had no idea. I can't believe that exists. I have to order a copy too. Isn't that the name of Evie's... Well, uh, that's podcast. Chick Peeps. That's, that's Chick oh, Peeps. Chick Peeps, yeah. Yeah. But and I she, do think I've heard of Chick Pea Magazine. I just didn't realize it was it was based in Rochester. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, no, that's very cool. I really want to uh, find out about it. And Evie also on the same on the same note, she's going to be on the podcast soon. Nice. Yeah. So we're talking about Ivana Lynch, who has a new book out called The Opposite of Butterfly Hunting, and it airs in mm, within the next few weeks. I can't remember the date off the top of my head, but it is an epic interview, so stay tuned for that. 
Speaking of things that are epic, I was looking at the calendar and I totally had a can you believe it moment when I was like, oh, Thanksgiving is this week when I was like looking at the date this airs because we recorded a few days before. And I was a little bit astonished by how and then and then, okay, this is probably so boring. So just fast forward 20 seconds because the next 20 seconds are going to be really boring. But like 45 minutes ago, I took one of my dogs out for a walk and it was like the most beautiful sunny day. And now it's completely dark gray and snowing buckets. We're not supposed to tell. We're trying to talk people into uh, into moving here. And it's not snowing buckets. That's more hyperbole. It's really pretty, though. I just looked up. Not even sticking. Just want to make that clear. If you hate snow, you really probably shouldn't move here. But don't overreact. Okay. I like Uh, snow. I do, too. So anyway, so with Thanksgiving coming up, I do want to sort of mention a couple of things. First of all, this week we have our annual tradition of playing our radio play on the podcast. We're gonna, we are we have another episode coming out, an extra special episode just for you coming out, I believe, on Tuesday called Sanctuary, which is a radio play written by John Yonker, who we love. And this was a play that we performed at the Symphony Space in New York City a few years ago. And we, just like Alice's Restaurant, we air it every year on our head house. And we have so much fun with that. So definitely stay tuned for that on Tuesday. You'll want to play it while you're making your tofurkeys. And we already recorded the beginning of the show for that. So I don't want to be too redundant. But I do want to say that we had our recent Flock Friday. And we mentioned Thanksgiving and some people were like, oh, yeah, I have my tofurkey already in the freezer. Some people were like, uh, oh, yeah, I'm getting catered from a, re- a nearby vegan restaurant. And then some people were like, I don't celebrate Thanksgiving. It's a day of mourning. It's horrible. And, you know, I agree completely. I, I, I change from year to year. So I don't want to dismiss anyone's perspectives on Thanksgiving. I just sort of want to say it was very interesting to be in a group of vegans and have so many different perspectives on it. Yeah, I think that probably reflects everybody else as well. It's not just vegans who have a lot of attitudes. It's just that the rest of if you're not vegan, you miss the whole current slaughter of all those turkeys. But a lot of people still have questions about the history. The way I think of it, I've said this on the podcast before. I don't know whether it's legit or not. So, you know, don't write to me if you think I'm just making up excuses. But I feel like every culture or at least northern cult, not tropic, non-tropical culture, has a harvest fest, you know, and like it's going to get cold and all of the food has uh, been gathered from the growing season. And it's just pretty standard. And it is a time to give thanks, whether it's to, you know, the Almighty or just to setting gratitude out there into the world that that you have food to eat and a warm place to sleep. And and I I feel like it's possible to detach that spirit of that type of holiday from, you know, the history, whatever extent you want. And and I do think that we, you know, obviously the history is very troubling. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. I don't see why we shouldn't have a harvest fest. We, I don't think we have to celebrate the extermination of indigenous peoples, um, which obviously, you know, is not something we want to celebrate. But do they have to be linked? I don't know. We always did link it when I was growing up, but I'm not sure it's a necessity. I mean, this touches on so many, so many different aspects of veganism. And I don't, I don't think that there is one right way of, about no, I don't how either. to handle, I don't how to handle Thanksgiving. 
I, I just like, you know, do we have to recreate meat? So many people say, no, we don't have to recreate meat. We could just move forward without it. And yet it seems to be that the, the mainstream way forward, the way to reach the most people with recreating meat is to recreate lab grown meat or new meat or cultured meat or, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. So to some extent, to some extent, we live in this ridiculous capitalist society. And to some extent, creating new ways of assimilating, but with a vegan bent on it is an important way forward, even if we're, we ourselves aren't partaking in it, like we ourselves aren't celebrating or commemorating Thanksgiving, or we ourselves aren't going to be eating the cultured meat. It's not necessarily always about what we're going to be doing. That said, everyone has a right to do whatever they're going to do, as long as it doesn't involve exploiting any other individual's so I wanted to just sort of give space for that because I know it's a complex yeah. and also it's very U.S. based and we have an international following. So I also wanted to kind of acknowledge that we're talking about the U.S. here in, in, in so many ways. But I, I think a lot of countries probably, as I mentioned, or a lot of cultures do have harvest festivals. It yes. kind of it, it kind of works out, though. It's not as obvious a, a schism, but the same way a lot of us feel about Religious holidays like Christmas and Easter, and if we grow up and kind of lose touch with that religion and decline to believe the the things that we were taught, like do we give up the holidays? All of these are you know decisions that there is no particular right way to do it. And that being said, we are going to be making Thanksgiving at my house, and we're really excited because I have sort of a collection of chosen family coming obviously you being the number one on that list. And I consider chosen family family. So I don't really see a distinction there. Uh, The weeds did have this conversation the other day. (laughs) Uh, This is just like how I see my family. And I have a distant cousin coming who I've never met who just moved to Rochester who's vegan. So like, that's kind of cool. So there will be some very distant blood relative there as well. We'll report back. I'm excited because we're getting our food from the vegan butcher in Rochester, which is called Grass Fed. And like, how cool is that to get a vegan butcher uh, roast and all of the things that go along? That's exciting. I didn't know you were getting a roast there. I was in there the other day buying some cold cuts and the guy behind the counter mentioned that they had really a lot of signups for vegan Thanksgiving. And I didn't know I was going to be partaking. I'm super excited now. Yes, you should be. We're going to have them on too because they have a really interesting bent on activism and just like doing it through vegan butchery. I'm like, how cool. I was so excited about chatting with them, hopefully, hopefully in the early part of next year. You know, this morning I was out on a walk. I've been trying to take these walks every morning just as a sort of nod to my mental health. I guess also my physical health, but I I focus more on the mental health and I feel like the physical health frequently benefits from that focus. And I saw these birds and I just uh, was so moved and happy and then instantly gutted, you know, just thinking about like what goes on for these birds. And, and, and I just sort of wanted to put this out there that like, if, if you're looking at wonderful animals out in the wild and you have that same reaction, like beauty and then sadness about what we do to them, you're not alone. You're not crazy. Do you mean sadness about what we do to the Thanksgiving birds? Is that is that who you're referring to? Currently, that's what's on my mind, what we do to the Thanksgiving right. birds. Obviously, these were not turkeys. I am so saddened uh, when I... Like, my happiness is so frequently trailed by such sadness when I'm out and about in the world. Well, I think that happens. Yeah. 
to so many people. It's like I saw, I was also walking in the cemetery this morning and I saw a deer like 10 feet in front of me. And then I turned around and quietly went back the other way instead of continuing around because I did, I was afraid of scaring him and having him run into the street. And I was like so taken by that moment that I was so close to this glorious animal. And then I thought about this NPR story that I read recently about how deer can be carriers of COVID and how me and you and more and Eric, like a bunch of people close in my life, we were discussing like what kind of impact that's going to have on the on the deer, you know, and basically everything we ended up with was like, you know, really bad, <laughs> not a good, not a good ending. So how can we see animals in the wild and just have that moment of like beauty and happiness and allow ourselves that moment instead of depriving ourselves of, of that by immediately knowing how humans exploit them? Well, I'm not sure there is a way. I mean, it's the burden everybody carries who's listening to this podcast that by allowing ourselves to know and by allowing ourselves to live in accordance with what we know, I mean, we just become aware of a lot of tragedy. Like somehow we do seem to manage it, you know, like humans are interesting. Like I know all this is going on and yet I still take pleasure in, in life uh, and in many of its aspects. But yeah, I, I don't know. And, you know, I don't want to be the dark person, but let's face it, that's kind of who I am. The climate conference that just ended last week, COP26, it's just like unbelievable. We're apparently not going to do enough about climate to save ourselves. That's my, that's my takeaway. Uh, I hope yours is different. Uh, you know, and yet you got to get up in the morning and you got to find some kind of joy in life. And, and that's just what we do. It's just what we do. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that the answer is maybe in conversations like these where not, not so much the COP26, our note, by the way, our note in front of us about what to talk about right now says COP26 meeting over slash we are all fucked. So, so not so much talking about that, but like going back to what I just said about like the animals who we're seeing in the wild and we want to be able to stop with the beauty and like same thing when we're visiting animals in sanctuary, can we just enjoy ourselves instead of sit in the sadness? And I think it's partly about intervening with our own thoughts and deciding that we can just sit with the beauty and, and, and deciding to shut off the sadness for that moment. It's not the same thing as deciding to shut off the reality of what's happening to animals because that's already unlocked for us. So it is a matter of what you just said, self-preservation. And I think that that's where it comes in. It's also a matter of being a better activist. If we can manage to be positive, and, you know, we've always said this about hope, like use it as a tool, uh, even, you know, just put it on <laughs> and don't fake it exactly, but kind of fake it and hope and, and joy and pleasure. Those are the things that reach other people. So. You are not betraying yourself if you do that. I mean, I sometimes get into that kind of a head, like like that it would be insane to be happy. So don't let yourself be happy, Marianne. But that is just not the way forward. It just isn't. Find things to be happy about and, and live your life and, you know, spread that and be a good activist. I don't know what else we can do. Well, that's what we mean when we say opting into hope. But I think we can also opt into happier moments. Yeah. No, I, I meant to, yeah, kind of link them that, yeah. that we can do both. 
Well, speaking of which, I just have a little bit of a shout out before we get to the interview. As as many of you know, I am the vice president of editorial at Kinder Beauty, which is a vegan cruelty-free beauty box that is co-founded by Daniela Monet and Ivana Lynch and Andrew Bernstein. And I had the great joy of executive producing the new Kinder Beauty podcast called A Little Kinder, which is hosted by Ivana and Daniela, and it is now out and so I wanted to give a little shout out because basically uh, the Kinder Beauty is a mission-driven organization that was started because Evie and Daniela and Andrew saw a place for ethical beauty and they wanted to mainstream that. But the podcast takes that a little bit further and kind of focuses on how to be a little kinder or a lot kinder using you know th- this idea of, of self-care and ethical beauty as a launching pad to discussing bigger issues of how we can show up better and kinder for ourselves and for the planet. So you can listen to it wherever, wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you like it. And I think there will be a season two on its way to coming next year. So stay tuned for that. And now, since we're on the Arahan House podcast now, let's get to the interview because I'm really looking forward to this. Katya Gunther is a professor of gender and sexuality studies at the University of California, Riverside. Her primary areas of research, writing, activism, and teaching are feminist and women's organizing and human exploitation of non-human animals. That sounds so cool. I want to get a coffee with her so much. Among her publications is The Lives and Deaths of Shelter Animals, which was published by Stanford University Press in 2020, and which received the 2021 Distinguished Book Award given by the American Sociological Association's Section on Animals and Society. Among other topics, this book explores the internal hierarchies of the shelter, breed discrimination, and instances of resistance and agency amongst both humans and animals. Dr. Gunther seeks to develop scholarship that is, quote, useful because it challenges existing ideas, improves our understanding of important social processes, and imagines new possibilities. She will be joining Marianne right after this. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to our hen house, Katya. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I am excited to talk to you about this book, which I I found fascinating. I was saying right before we started recording that, of course, I care about all animal issues. You know, there's a special focus on farmed animals, but, you know, dogs, like, it's where it started. And, and I can't help but have a passionate interest in so many of the things you wrote about in this book. But let's get to why you decided to write it, because it's clear that you have a lot of areas of scholarly interest. And it's clear that this was going to take a lot of time and work. So what is it about our relationship with companion animals that that you thought was worth it to put this amount of time and, and research into it? I think what is important for me about the companion animal relationship is that it's one half of our hypocrisy in our relationships with animals more broadly. 
companion animals are the animals we love and claim to treat as our best friends and view as our family members or as our fur kids. And yet we also live in a society that continues to use shelter killing as a so-called solution to unhoused companion animals and how to deal with the so-called problem of, of animals that don't have places that we consider appropriate for them to live. It's sort of a two-part piece. Part of it is my interest is why why is it, how is it that we have this relationship with these animals that we claim is so different from our relationship with other types of animals, namely farmed animals who in our, you know, in our society we unfortunately kill with impunity without most people giving a lot of additional thought to that. But with companion animals, we have a totally different relationship. And yet we still also engage in this pattern of behavior with companion animals. So what I really wanted to kind of drill down into through this work was thinking about humans' fundamental ideas around relationships with animals and how those are embedded, especially in institutions and how institutions often carry out work and, and so-called missions that perhaps a large segment of the population actually doesn't approve of, but they're kind of on this track that is hard to get off of. And the book is very much a, a critique of our existing shelter structures, but it also concludes with some ideas for how it is that we might change that track pretty significantly. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, they think we've already changed it a lot. I did an interview with somebody else, Kara Achterberg, who talked about shelters in the rural South. And it was such, I mean, her work is very different. <laughs> She's rescue. You know, it's, it's a different, different take. But it just reminded me that we kind of have this idea, oh, yeah, we're fixing, at least for dogs, for cats, it's not as good. But there are many places in the country, particularly areas of poverty, that we're not fixing it at all. I mean, it's still just like it used to be. I mean, maybe the talk is a little better, but it's not very different. So before we get into those issues, tell us a little bit about the shelter that you worked in and why you chose it to focus these three years of your life on. Absolutely. The shelter where I conducted my field work is a high intake, open admission shelter in the Los Angeles area where, where I live and work. And California is the per capita highest producer of shelter animals in the nation by far. Uh, <laughs> Texas is, is now catching up more recently, but we, we have here, unfortunately, in California, the highest per capita shelter intakes, the highest per capita shelter killing rates as well. And I was interested in, in being in an open admission shelter because a lot of the research that's been conducted on shelters in the past has focused more on so-called closed admission shelters. And the difference there for those not familiar with this terminology is that open admission shelters are required usually because they're public facilities to take in any animal that is brought to them or who their field officers find in need while they're out working in the field. Whereas closed admission shelters can require people to provide a history of an animal, they can require behavior assessments, they basically are able to limit their intakes and often in that way are able to, to limit the animals that they actually have at their shelters to those that are kind of the most or more desirable, right? They might have more kittens and puppies, fewer pit bulls. And here in Southern California, we have a huge population in our shelters as well of chihuahuas. Open admission shelters, you'll see a lot of those animals, including old dogs and cats, animals with clear disease or health issues, 
whereas closed intake shelters don't necessarily have that particular dynamic. I was also interested in this shelter because I, I myself was already embedded there as a volunteer at the time that I started doing field work. And so I was aware of some really interesting dynamics in that particular shelter environment having to do with relationships and conflicts between volunteers who often have very different views and ideologies about how to care for companion animals in a shelter environment than do members of the staff. And I saw how this shelter related to the community in which it was located and specifically how issues of race and ethnicity and class meant that people in that community were much more likely to lose their companion animals to the shelter than people in more affluent, whiter neighborhoods. And that's where the the book really digs into these fascinating issues. I'm going to take a quote out and then ask you a question about it. You say, middle-class norms of what constitutes proper care of such animals have given rise to a discourse of irresponsible owners or people who lack the moral fitness to provide appropriate care to companion animals and who, at PAW, which is the shelter, the name of the shelter, come from the shelter's predominantly non-white and low-income service area. I have a couple of questions about this, but first, can you explain how shelters and others deflect blame onto what they characterize as irresponsible owners and to deflect the blame off of some of the social problems that give rise to these situations. And and also maybe offer a little advice on how to avoid falling into that routine. Yeah, absolutely. The, the irresponsible owners narrative is so powerful. And even though there has been, I think, especially in the last year and a half, quite a bit of a shift in a lot of corners, at least, of the animal sheltering industry towards trying to be more compassionate towards people in financial need and people living in poverty who are trying to keep their companion animals. There's still such a powerful reliance on this idea that there are certain types of people who are fundamentally morally unfit to take care of companion animals. And the narrative about irresponsible owners aligns very closely with our broader social narratives around poor people of color in the United States as being kind of lazy, as being freeloaders, as caring more about themselves than about other people, um, as having perhaps even inhumane orientations towards animals and having problematic you know, personal practices and how they understand what it means to take care of an animal. And what I observed at the Pacific Animal Welfare Center or the PAW, the shelter where I did field work, very consistently was that companion animal guardians wanted very much to continue taking care of their companion animals. I met virtually no one um, who came into that shelter to surrender a companion animal who was there in a way that struck me as being indifferent or callous. Not to say it never happened, but it was certainly a very, very small minority of cases. Overwhelmingly, people had tried all kinds of different strategies to try to keep their companion animals with them. Overwhelmingly, people were there emotionally upset about having to leave companion animals behind. And even among so-called stray animals, so animals who were picked up in the field, when I talked to people in the broader community as well, I learned a lot of those animals were in sort of similar situations where perhaps a, a former guardian was evicted and didn't want to bring their dog to the shelter. So they left them in the backyard of their old apartment or old house instead with a bag of food, thinking that was better for the dog than bringing the dog 
to the shelter. That's It's not indifference, right? It ends up being interpreted, especially on social media by the rescue community and people involved in advocating for shelter animals, that these are these horrible, callous, uncaring people. But I think in, you know, in my data, that was not at all the pattern that I observed. Yeah, it's really important, of course, to keep track of the fact that this isn't the pattern. But how do you draw that line? I mean, because there are irresponsible owners. There are some people who, who treat animals badly. And it seems that in order to solve this racialization of, of this whole process, that we have to acknowledge that and say, you're drawing the line in the wrong place, but here's where you draw the line. There really are irresponsible owners. Some, as you point out, some people are rendered irresponsible by circumstance, that that they lose their apartment, you know, it just, something terrible happens to them, so they can't take care of the animal, but, it, you know, it's not their fault, but still the animal is at risk. And this is such a hard question, but I don't ask you to have the answer, maybe just some thoughts on it. How do you separate systemic responsibility from individual responsibility and not blame individuals, but still protect the animals, still offer to the rescuers this idea, no, you are there to protect the animals and this is how you do it? That is a great question, and it is something I agree that we need to grapple with. Let me start by saying that I think that one of the bigger mistakes that we've seen the animal sheltering movement making to date so far is focusing too much on the irresponsible owners and not enough on the responsible ones. Because the dogs and cats coming into shelters overwhelmingly are coming from responsible guardians, not from these so-called irresponsible owners. So if we actually want to help keep more animals out of shelters, which presumably is one of the major goals of advocates for shelter animals, then we need to do more to help people who are responsible, who do care about their animals, who do have meaningful bonds with the companion animals in their care so that they can keep those companion animals. In terms of identifying folks who are truly irresponsible uh, (laughs) or unfit guardians, you know, I think we need to perhaps engage even with some of those shifting ideas and models that have taken place in the foster care system, which in a lot of ways has tremendous parallels to animal sheltering. It's also a system that's primarily invested in disrupting relationships. And relatively recently, the foster care system in many states, at least, has transitioned more to focusing on trying to maintain kinship relations between children and and parents, even when those parents are struggling. And in foster care, we see models like having parents required to attend parenting classes. We see models of direct support that has more regular contact uh, with social workers, right? People visiting on a regular basis to check how things are going. What our solution right now with irresponsible owners tends to be either to just impound the animal And often the animals that come from irresponsible owners are also the least suitable animals to be placed for adoption because they've often been living outdoors as as so-called yard dogs. They're not housebroken. They're often not terribly well socialized with people. They're sometimes very fearful, et cetera. You know, and in some of those cases, possibly the best solution for everyone is actually to keep those animals in their current home, but not simply by handing that person a bag of food and saying, please make sure you feed your dog. But by having a system where there's actually repeated visitation, you know, from animal control or from a rescue volunteer who's monitoring on an ongoing basis whether and and how things are improving. And with each of those contacts, also using those contacts as an opportunity to educate that person about what it is that they need to be doing differently for their animal 
to be cared for properly. And then I should say there's a third category of people that, that are beyond irresponsible owners, and those are animal abusers. You know, with any system of categorization, things aren't neat dichotomies, right? We can't just draw of sim- course. S- simple lines. Life would be so much simpler if we could tell by looking at somebody whether they're bad or not. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So some some people are gonna go and see a dog that's a so-called junkyard dog, which we see a lot of here in Los Angeles. They're outdoor dogs that guard auto body shops or whatever. And they're often a little bit underweight. They often have fly strike ears. You know, they have indicators that they're not being terribly well cared for on a, on a day-to-day basis. And there are people who will see those animals and say, that's abuse, right? A dog having fly strike, that's abuse. And there's other people who are going to say, you know, it has to be a more proactive <laughs> type of action that's taking place on the part of the guardian um, or owner to, to the animal. They have to be deliberately trying to hurt them in some way. And I I do think we need to continue to have a framework for intervening in and engaging with people who are truly seeking to harm animals, while while also keeping in mind that there are very few of them. And we invest so much time and energy into getting riled up and seeking legal recourse for so-called abusers of companion animals that draws, I think, in many ways, our attention away from the systemic abuse that's taking place every minute in this country against farmed animals, which is not to say we should just ignore (laughs) abuse against companion animals, but also to, to help us think about how can we do these things together rather than having one project kind of detract from the other, kind of become a folk villain so that we don't think about this other awful thing that's happening and that's actually affecting way, way more animals on a, on a regular basis. As always, good policy is really hard, sometimes expensive and complicated. And good policy has never been applied to animals. So yeah, that we need good policy and we need people to carry it out. How much of the dog problem is a pit bull problem? Is it all a pit bull problem? In, in Los Angeles, where I conduct field work, it's a significant part of the problem. <laughs> if you're looking for a, for me to come up with a hard number, it's half the problem. I don't know that, that I can do that, but it's definitely a significant part of the problem. At the shelter where I did field work, typically between a third and half of the dogs impounded at any given time were labeled as so-called pit bull type dogs. And another probably third were chihuahuas, but chihuahuas are much more readily adoptable. You can ship all the chihuahuas to the East Coast. They'll go in a minute. Exactly. It doesn't People just really want small dogs. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they if, if they bite. You know, I, I talk in the book about it. The volunteer who's most severely injured by any dog in the time I was volunteering there for seven years was someone who was bit by a chihuahua. So, you know, even small bites can have really profound damaging health of effects. Course. But in, indeed, yes, they, they're, they're so much easier to deal with as a problem than our pit bulls. So I, I think the pit bulls are a big part of the problem. And they're, they're a problem not because of them themselves, but, you know, of how we have constructed them, the narratives that we have as, as people about them. And there has been a, a major sea change. You were taught, you said earlier that a lot of things have improved in the world of animal sheltering. And I absolutely agree with that. You know, nationally, our numbers of shelter killing have dropped hugely over the last 20 to 30 years. Um, And they continue to be trending generally downwards, although I think we're going to have some bumpy times now and in the near future. But pit bulls are this one population where even though we have a whole pit bull advocacy movement and a good deal of destigmatization and more pit bulls finding homes, 
there's still such a reluctance for people to adopt those animals. And the ways that we talk about them continue to reflect a lot of bigger problems that we have that go, that go beyond the dogs. So much of the discussion of pit bulls kind of epitomized. It's just a fascinating discussion in your book. And you talked about the interconnection of attitudes towards pit bulls and attitudes towards Black men and how intertwined they are and and how policies against pit bulls can act to discriminate racially. Can you just kind of unpack that whole issue of the links that people draw? Like how... Uh, by destigmatizing the pit bulls, we're just kind of trying to separate them from from this idea of black men instead of like destigmatizing everybody. Oh, anyway, all right, now you talk. <laughs> no, that that's a one that's a wonderful summary. So th- thank you for that. Um, <laughs> that's a, a big part of what I what I talk about. But I think it's important, first of all, for folks to know that the relationship uh, that we have between pit bulls and black masculinity is relatively young. You know, until the early 20th century, pit bulls were almost the exclusive domain of white guardians and owners. And among other things that pit bulls were used for, they were used to terrorize and sometimes to, to maul and kill escaped slaves. So they the, the breed themselves, you know, they have a particular racialized history in this country. And when Black men started to get involved in the practice of uh, dogfighting, and the, the same thing happened with the practice of, of cockfighting. A lot of white men, you know, use that as a place to try to draw boundaries and and say black men are, are actually too inferior to work with these dogs, right? Drew on, on racialized discourses and racist conversation to make the case that that blacks weren't fit, um, you know, to be guardians for these dogs. We really only see pit bulls becoming more visible in lower income black communities during the middle part of the 20th century, when it seems like, you know, their appeal was very much connected to broader economic trends taking place during that time, the increased uh, ghettoization of Black Americans, the drying up of industrial labor kinds of jobs, but good factory jobs that rendered a lot of Black families and households more vulnerable financially and gave rise to a lot of different social problems, including increased drug use and abuse, gangs, and so forth. So today we have 60 years, I suppose, maybe a little bit longer even, of this impression, this cultural understanding of pit bulls as being dogs that come out of and belong in lower-income Black communities, and specifically who belong with Black men. We know statistically that very few of these dogs are actually used for dog fighting. But the myth of dogfighting continues to hang very heavily over pit bulls as a breed and is constantly invoked as a reason to see them as a difficult or dangerous type of dog. But even beyond that, there is this very deep cultural connection that white mainstream society has made between pit bulls and Black men in the United States, seeing both of them as individuals who are too physical, who are too violent, um, who are dangerous, who are threatening, who are problematic, who need to be controlled. And the easiest and most efficient mechanism we have for controlling them is through incarceration, which for Black men has meant mass incarceration in prisons, and for pit bulls has meant mass incarceration in animal shelters. Can you talk a little bit about the special conditions that pit bulls experience at the shelter that you were working at? 
because they they are treated differently than other dogs, regardless of any kind of behavior testing. Yeah, pit bulls are treated differently. At the shelter where I volunteered, there was a whole separate set of rules and regulations that applied to so-called dominant breed dogs. And there are some other types of dogs included in that broader category of dominant breed. But the important thing to note is that it was, even though the policy included other dogs, which kind of gives the shelter an opportunity to say, we're not targeting pit bulls. We included Rottweilers in there. We included Akitas in there. The reality is those other types of dogs are almost never in the shelter. So there's a a substantial disparate impact on pit bulls of these policies, right? These policies functionally are only affecting them because they're the only dominant breeds who are actually in the shelter on a daily basis. And those, the rules and regulations really just restricted access that both volunteers and staff had to pit bulls in the shelter, which meant that pit bulls had totally different conditions of confinement than other types of dogs who are at the shelter. So most dogs at the shelter can come out of their cages and go into the play areas or the social areas with volunteers or staff members. They can be held, they can be carried around, they can be cuddled, you can go take them and sit on a bench and spend quality time with them, you can play games with them, etc., But the pit bulls weren't allowed to come out of their cages until they had completed a shelter-administered temperament test, um, which was meant to evaluate their propensity for aggressive behavior. And the shelter often didn't administer those tests to pit bulls that were in their care for weeks at a time, which meant that these big, high-energy dogs are stuck in these relatively small, dark, dingy kennels with no contact with other humans and their only contact with other dogs being you know, the way that they're able to sort of pogo stick above the cinder block barriers in their kennels and look at the dogs in the neighboring kennels through the chain link, which some some jumpy dogs are successful at doing that, or dogs who are walking by in the hallways. Um, so it just really heightens their emotional state, right? It's, it's of course a, a really challenging environment in which to be any dog, but especially to be a big high energy animal. And then a lot of the pit bulls were never temperament tested at all and were killed before that ever happened. So there wasn't even an orientation that we had to test the dogs before killing them if the shelter felt like it was crowded or more commonly if the shelter didn't have enough staff to care for the animals who were there, they would simply authorize euthanization or killing of pit bulls even if they hadn't been evaluated for potential adoptability. And that's just one set. I talk in the book about a number of other policies that restricted also adopters' access to pit bull-type dogs, also the informal practices, the types of language that the staff members use when interacting with people who express a pit bull over and over and over again. I'd see people in the front lobby who want to adopt a pit bull saying, I'm interested in this dog, and the shelter staff member looks them up at the computer, sees their pit bull, and says, oh, are you sure you want that kind of dog? You know pit bulls are really tough you know, or says something. Oh my, that's really, um, that's surprising that even the shelter workers would would steer people away from them. Oh yes, they they have, not all of them did, but many, many of them did. So one of the issues that, that I really struggle with that your book brought up, because it's very personal to me, being a white middle-class lady <laughs> who, who loved, loved, loved her beloved pit bull who died last year, but fascinating insights here. This idea that the way that rescuers help pit bulls, and of course there is an enormous rescue community working on pit bulls, trying to get them out of these horrible conditions and into good homes. But they they do that 
according to your book, and many examples were given of this kind of uh, behavior by associating them with whiteness. And it's obviously a complex issue, but rather than having me talk about it, can you just talk, can you just like talk about this this kind of situation a bit and how problematic it is? Also, how good it is in some ways in that there are people who want to save these dogs. I mean, we are all we're all in favor of that. We're, we're absolutely all in favor of that. And the Pitbull rescue community and advocacy community, as I mentioned earlier, has done a tremendous amount to shift public opinion about these dogs just, you know, since 2000, really, with the founding of Bad Rap in Oakland, you know, and then sort of similar parallel types of Pitbull advocacy organizations in cities and communities across the United States. It's very common now in my neighborhood. I live in a predominantly white and Asian middle to upper middle class community. And I see people walking pit bulls regularly when I'm out walking my pit bull <laughs> and my other dogs who aren't, who aren't pit bulls. You know, so they, they're, they're much more accepted, right? As part of the suburban landscape than was the case in the past. And that means more of them are getting homes and fewer of them are being killed in shelters. And those are terrific things. There's also been a huge expansion of spay-neuter access, particularly free and low-cost spay-neuter access, and that's played a big part in reducing the pit bull population as well. But among the pit bulls who are left, <laughs> who, you know, who, who need advocacy or most commonly, and this is what I, the, the group I sort of focus on in the book, are rescue organizations who pull pit bulls out of the shelter to take into their no-kill rescue groups, typically placing the dogs in a foster home pending finding a, a permanent adoptive home for that particular dog. And it's during that time that we see these pit bull rescuers who are not all, but who are very disproportionately white, upper middle class, highly educated women engaging in practices that are really meant to feminize the dogs and are meant to take away their history or their presumed history as attached to low-income people of color and refashion them as animals that can be part of your more mainstream white upper middle class or financially secure household. And that involves all kinds of routine labor that these, these mostly women are engaging in, dressing up pit bulls in cute outfits, pit bull pajamas. I mean, what a fashion craze. <laughs> You know, putting pit bulls to make them look like cute little babies instead of, you know, making them look like the large, often very muscular, physical dogs, who many of them, not all of them, some of them are real couch potatoes, uh, <laughs> who many of them are. Crafting narratives around their point of origin that always points back to that irresponsible owner, right? That monster of the past who implicitly, but often explicitly, is identified as a poor or lower income man of color using language like they're from the ghetto. We even have a, a rescue in Los Angeles that's called Ghetto Rescue, you know, invoking these really powerful, racialized, and often racist ideas to try to separate the dogs from the people that they presumably belonged to in the past who were, who were irresponsible owners or guardians to them. And there's all these, these routine things through adoption and especially how the dogs are presented on social media, which is such an important site for spreading the word about pit bulls generally, but also such an important site for trying to get individual dogs adopted. 
a lot of animal rescue groups today find that using Instagram and TikTok and Facebook is a more effective way to find permanent homes than using adoption websites like Adopt a Pet and Pet Finder. And they put pictures up there of, you know, pit bulls wearing scarves and sunglasses, you know, looking like movie actor, actresses, you know, from the, <laughs> the golden age of Hollywood with the scarf blowing, uh, blowing behind them. Pictures of pit bulls being cuddled by, you know, highly photogenic small white children, you know, in the context of their adoptive homes. And these practices are good in the sense that they destabilize some of our dominant understandings of pit bulls as being aggressive or as being scary for children or unsafe to be around children. But they at the same time reinforce the idea that white practices around how you care for companion animals are preferable. And they also really erase the realities that most of these dogs come from, which as I talk about in the book, is overwhelmingly people of color who cared about these dogs, who loved them, and who wanted the best for them, <laughs> um, who, weren't, who weren't these villains of the ghetto <laughs> at all, but, but were low-income people who struggled. Our housing market in Los Angeles is outrageous. The cost of you know, a modest one-bedroom apartment is easily $1,500 a month, even in low-income many low-income communities, and to find a place that would accept a large dog, let alone a pit bull-type dog, is functionally impossible for a lot of people. So there's just all these components of it that go missing. And with the emphasis and all the energy that's put into the individual dogs, there's just no effort or energy that's put into actually trying to deal with the roots of the problems that result in these animals coming into the shelters. It is a heartbreaking situation. And obviously, one of the things that enter into analyzing it is money. And these dogs frequently end up in, in the shelter because of money, because they're poor, or at least poor adjacent, and they can't afford whatever it is that they need to do in order to keep the animal, the apartment or the medical care or whatever. But at the same time, it's not like we can have a country in which like uh, dogs are being killed at the same time that people are being told that uh, they're not sufficiently affluent. One of the the, the most shocking things I, I read about was rescue organizations or rescuers who actually redline entire neighborhoods in the idea that these Black or Latinx neighborhoods, they're just completely, everybody there is unacceptable for to be eligible for dog ownership. But where should, I mean, but money does count. I mean, like, like everything. And it isn't exactly up to these rescue organizations or the shelter to be able to fix the fact that we have poverty in this country. So so how do you draw that line? How, who, who is eligible to have a dog? If we're totally taking, which we absolutely must, race and culture, or at least ethnicity, there might be cultural practices that are relevant. I, I shouldn't say that's impossible, but how do they draw that line? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I just want to back up to something that you you said because my orientation in the book is a little is is quite markedly different from that, which is that it's not up to animal shelters or animal rescuers to help eradicate poverty in this country. And my finding is is not that. It is that absolutely people who are involved in animal rescue, if they're truly committed to trying to help companion animals stay with their original guardians with whom they have bonds for the longest period of time, if they want to end the kind of soul-killing elements of racism and poverty that include 
so many different aspects of the lives that poor people of color lead in this country, but those often also involve the severing or disruption of relationships with companion animals, then people who are involved in companion animal rescue absolutely need to be doing more to work against poverty. And here in the Los Angeles area, we do have a a smattering of organizations who are doing that nationally. American Pets Alive um, is among organizations, the Humane Society as well, that are taking more of a policy orientation to paying attention to what happens to people and animals when we do even seemingly minor but highly contentious policy changes like raising the minimum wage. Um, you know, research has shown that uh, raising the minimum wage, even by a few dollars, reduces rates of child abuse. Would that not also potentially be true? I'm not aware of any study that's looked at it in regards to animal abuse, but I think it's reasonable to assume that the same would be true for um, abuse of animals. When people have the resources that they need, they don't engage at the same rate in problematic behaviors. So that's not to say that everyone who's doing animal rescue needs to drop everything and become a full-time anti-poverty or pro-social justice advocate, but it is something that they need to start integrating into their organizational frameworks and asking themselves, what is my group really doing to help this problem? Because rescuing one pit bull at a time while reinforcing dominant understandings of race and class and gender in this country is not a helpful approach and it's not really working. Um, It's going to get us to a certain point and then it sort of stops. It stalls out. (laughs) I'm really glad you went back and talked about that because I do think that's a hugely important point. Though perhaps at the same time, we could talk about what can be done. It's not that it's not up to rescue organizations and it's up to all of us to work on this. But what can be done until we fix it? (laughs) Like living in the world that we are now, what are the best practices that we could follow or that shelters and rescuers could follow right now to not fall into these traps at the same time as recognizing that poverty is not irrelevant to the ability to care for animals, though God knows there are many wealthy people who rescue animals or who adopt animals or who buy animals and treat them with complete irresponsibility. So, but it's not irrelevant. I mean, taking care of another creature costs money. And so what should the policy be? I just want to start by by pointing out that shelters and rescues are two sort of organizationally distinct realms of activity. They tend to have different goals They tend to have different considerations financially and otherwise. Shelters are often publicly or taxpayer funded, whereas rescues are raising most of their funds from um, private donors or sometimes from foundations. And I think the goals of both of them are also different. Shelters are oriented towards helping animals in a crisis situation and finding another placement for them as quickly as possible that ideally is a so-called forever home. But if that animal comes back into a shelter, ends up being rehomed by that guardian, I don't think most shelters consider that inherently problematic. Rescues tend to be smaller, you know, volunteer-driven organizations where there is a very powerful emphasis on trying to find a forever home for a companion animal. And the worst thing that can really happen other than catastrophic disease that harms animals in their care for rescues is that animals come back to them. That's what they absolutely are trying to avoid. It's it's sort of the implicit, if not explicit role that they have adopted is trying to find homes for animals that will be forever homes. And I think part of what we could think about is what it would look like if in fact, we weren't so wedded to the idea of forever homes. If we thought about alternative arrangements 
that humans might have with each other that would facilitate animals transitioning between homes in different ways. That might include especially doing more to support and advocate for owner rehoming or self-rehoming. So instead of having animals come into a shelter, which is often, not always, there's a lot of wonderful, beautiful shelter facilities, including in the in the town that I live in here in, in California, where again, having a rich white community means you have a beautiful low-kill shelter. <laughs> so some, some shelters are lovely, others are not. But we can find ways to encourage and create the resources for them to find new homes for companion animals if they aren't able to keep those companion animals themselves. We can also talk about, and there's a tiny, I think at this point, movement to try to do more of this, provide crisis foster homes for people who find themselves in a short-term situation where they're unable to keep a companion animal so that that companion animal can can go stay with a foster home for six weeks or three months or, or whatever until that person or family is able to find a new home that accepts the dog or cat or has recovered from the illness that's made it difficult for them to care for for the animal. I'm familiar with um, some organizations that have used that in domestic violence situations when a woman wants to leave the home, afraid to leave the animal. Sometimes the animal is very much an, a co-victim of violence and and to set up a foster care system until she can find her uh, her way clear. She or he. And here in Los Angeles, um, the shelter systems are now accepting, for instance, um, companion animals from people who are experiencing housing issues at no cost to the to the owners for a defined period of time intended to give owners a possibility of finding housing or finding a new place to live. So the, the guardians aren't required to surrender. Basically, they can board their companion animals at the shelter. And I think for rescues, there will always be these tough questions because they are, are dealing with a different financial picture where having an animal coming back into their care, you know, two years down the line or five years down the line, usually when they're less adoptable, right? Generally speaking, the older, the older an animal is, like even one year, like every year an animal's older, that animal's less adoptable. <laughs> so, you know, absolutely, I think we need to move away from these kinds of redlining practices that I, that I talk about in the book, this idea that they're simply entire communities or entire groups of people who can't be trusted to care for animals and adopt a more individualistic approach where there's more of an effort to understand and assess that household's previous relationship with animals. Did they bring an animal to the shelter in the past, for instance, or rehome an animal? And in what circumstances? Why did that happen? How have things changed in their lives since that time? And to remember, too, that people learn lessons. And I always like try to put this in the context of myself. I live on a uh, on a canyon in, a, in an area where nature and human structures are very close together. So we have bears and bobcats uh, and coyotes, you know, regularly here. Our cats are kept as indoor cats only, but we had one cat who we adopted out of a, a colony of street cats, and he always had a very strong interest in trying to leave the house in spite of our efforts to keep him in. And one day he clawed his way through a screen and went out to the backyard. We noticed, we don't know when we noticed, hours later, probably it was the same day, presumably we'd seen him that morning, but we don't know exactly how long it had been. And we never saw that cat again in spite of a tireless search <laughs> over many months to locate him. It's heartbreaking. But we went out and adopted another cat, right? And when I filled out the adoption application at the cat rescue for the new cat, I told them what had happened. 
and explained what we learned, you know, from this situation. I explained what we did to try to find this cat, how long we had searched, what our steps in searching, you know, for the cat involved, what we had done in the first place to try to prevent the cat from getting out of the house. And that rescue decided I was still okay. (laughs) And it helped, of course, that I'm white and educated and I, and I live in a so-called good neighborhood. Right. And very able to express yourself and to tell your story. No, but I think a lot of people can, if they're, if they're asked the right questions, they can. And that was always my experience in, in talking with prospective adopters because the dog, I fostered dozens of pit bulls, mostly pit bulls for rescues here in the LA area. And I got calls from all kinds of people asking about about adoption. And there were multiple cases where I felt a home was suitable for a companion animal and other people in the rescue organization who ultimately it was their decision to make, not mine, because I don't run the rescue, I'm just a foster home, said, no, the dog can't go to that household. You know, they, they weren't willing to have those conversations. And it is more time consuming, I suppose, or it can be. But I think those relationships are also what helps ensure that when or if there is a problem in that household in the future, that that household reaches back out to the rescue rather than just taking the dog to the shelter, you know, or, or leaving them in a canyon or, or what other possible, you know, ideas they might have. Yeah, it's not like the other options are fine. So the one thing I wanted to add is that I don't know whether this is true of everybody, so maybe I shouldn't admit it. But when I think of my first dog, like the number of mistakes I made, I don't mean that, you know, like I like I put him in dire danger or like let him run loose on the streets or something. But, you know, like your first dog has to be very, very patient because you make mistakes, like the way you teach them things and and help them, you know, learn how to best get along with you because because they have to live with you just as much as you have to live. With. Like, it's awful. Like I. I think we all have to learn from our first animals. So if we have to admit everything we did wrong, it would just be a disaster. They'd never let us have another one. We've used up so much time and there's just so much left in this book that we didn't talk about. And and one of the subjects, and I mean, it's a big subject that runs throughout the book. Well, you talk about the themes of domination, defiance, and conflict in, in analyzing the relationships within the shelter. But I particularly wanted to talk about defiance because I think you really talk a lot about resistance, both from humans and animals to, to policies within the shelter. Can you talk a little bit in general about that? And then also maybe, maybe focus a little bit on the mourning issue on how mourning becomes an act of defiance. Cause I just thought that was so moving and fascinating. Resistance was such an important part of my analysis, and I'm sure that's partially an outcome of my training as a sociologist who focuses on on social movements and women's resistance to inequalities. And I found the shelter to be such a rich environment for looking at and trying to better understand resistance. There were really two major dynamics of resistance that I talk about, and analyze in the book. One of those is volunteer resistance to how the shelter basically does things on a regular basis. We have at the Pacific Animal Welfare Center two different populations of humans, at least, operating there, one of whom is the volunteers who are mostly white, more educated, middle and upper class women who live outside of the service area of the shelter. Most of them drive in from other more affluent neighborhoods that this shelter is not responsible for providing services to. And then we have the staff members who are overwhelmingly lower income Latinx people with 
associate's degrees or sometimes just high school degrees who are trained within the institution, right, within the culture of the organization, that there's a certain right way to take care of the animals who are at the shelter and who also, just because of the sheer volume of animals there, develop certain coping strategies that in the context of a shelter environment that you know, takes in 20,000 animals a year make a lot of sense. But for volunteers who believe that every animal should be seen as an individual and every animal should be given a chance to be adopted, to be cared for, to be loved, to have a new relationship with a human, that there's going to be conflicts between those, those volunteers and the shelter. The second group that I also talk about in the book, but I think I'll not spend too much time talking about right now, just in the interest of time, are the animals themselves, because the animals themselves also resist the conditions of their confinement. They use a lot of different strategies to communicate to the staff, to the volunteers, to the institution as a whole, that they're not happy with how they're being treated, and they don't want to be engaged in this particular relationship between humans and animals. That is this imposition of a carceral or jail-like type of experience in which they have very little control over their day-to-day routines and activities. But circling back to the volunteers and the staff, just briefly, you you mentioned as well this practice of grieving. Um, You know, in the book, I talk about a lot of different ways that volunteers mobilize some of the resources that they have from outside of the shelter, including just their general social status as educated, affluent people, to kind of sometimes engage in mutual transactions with the shelter, but sometimes to engage more in coercion uh, (laughs) or assertive strategies of resistance to say to the shelter, listen, what you're doing is unfair and unjust, and we need to do this some different way. And those acts of resistance generally didn't center on what the shelter did as a whole, but rather focused on specific animals, like what you're doing to this animal right now isn't okay. Let's change how this animal is being treated. And they are very effective in shifting the outcomes for companion animals in the shelter by being there as eyes to watch out for what's happening in the context of the shelter, as people who, unlike the paid staff, actually have the time to get to know some of the animals on a more personal and individual level, and who then can use that knowledge to advocate more convincingly for specific animals. So they play a really big role in in helping animals exit the shelter alive, and either through rescue or through adoption. They also, unfortunately, like everyone at the shelter, and I mean, no one is more impacted as among the humans than the staff are, have to cope with the shelter's practices of killing. And when I was conducting field work, that was a relatively routine activity. We knew the days of the week on which animals at the shelter were killed. We knew about the space in which they were killed. We knew about how they were killed. And not often, but sometimes, we saw the bodies of animals who had been killed before they were disposed of and ultimately taken to to the rendering plant. And one strategy of resistance that I dedicate a chapter to in the book is, is mourning, is using grief as a mechanism of resistance. Because in our society, we don't think of shelter animals as a grievable population, We are now at this point socially more accepting of the idea that people grieve their personal companion animals, 
right? We now have at Target <laughs> or Walgreens or whatever condolence cards, right? For the loss of your companion animal. But we still don't think of that loss as being as significant as other losses that people experience in their lives. And we certainly don't think about animals in institutional settings as animals that need to be or deserve grieving or acts of remembrance. There's no ritual for factory farmed animals in the United States, and there's no ritual for animals who are killed in animal shelters. And one mechanism of resistance that these volunteers use is by engaging in and having a social practice of grief in which they remember and memorialize animals who are killed at the shelter and also use those memories as a basis for advocating for changes in how the shelter is going about its routine business, including its policies and practices, but also practices that aren't necessarily formal, formalized through policies. It's a very moving chapter. And, you know, a lot of your book, it's not easy to sit down and and confront a chapter. And I that one, you know, when I saw the next topic, I was really like, I, but it really meant a lot to me, this idea that mourning and grief is, is just, it's a political act in so many ways and, and, and can really be a way of creating change. So I have 10 billion more questions to, to ask you, but we're kind of out of time. And I know you're doing some new work on community cats. I, I can't wait to hear more about that and uh, see what develops from that. Just fascinating, deep, deep work on companion animals and the intersection with so many other issues in our society that that I just, really a valuable contribution, Katya. The Lives and Deaths of Shelter Animals, I, I highly recommend it. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great having this conversation. I appreciate it. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is from one of our favorites. That's Rick Berman, the executive director of the Center for Consumer Freedom. And this is from his free range thoughts column on Meeting Place. Insights from inside the fake meat industry. He's talking about the Good Food Institute's recent conference. And he's just giving his insights about what happened. I thought they might be interesting to you. For one thing, he starts off by saying the fake meat industry is looking to leverage politics in its favor. Oh, wow. Not like the meat industry. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. All right. He mentions uh, Rose DeLauro, who offered her comments at at the conference, which is good to know. She's a Democrat from Connecticut. Then he talks about federal legislation that would impose a national moratorium on new concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFOs. I assume he's talking about Cory Booker's bill. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's out there. They're going to pass it? I doubt it, but sure would be great. Because, you know, there are a few people from the meat industry who might just possibly be in Congress as well. All right, another, another point. Activists are also seeking taxpayer money 
to be given to support the synthetic meat industry. In April, a vegan New York Times columnist, obviously he's talking about Ezra Klein, called for a moonshot to support the industry's development. It is true that, you know, the USDA just announced that $10 million grant, $10 million, of course, a drop in the bucket compared to the size of the job and compared to the size of the money they give to the industry. But, you know, it's a good thing. Expect activists to support punitive measures against natural meat consumers, including taxes, likely under the guise of climate change. The guise of climate change, does he think that climate change is not real? Yeah, and listen to it. Expect activists to support. Well, yeah, activists are going to support it. Are any Congress people going to support it? I doubt it. Well, you know, I, I don't take my hope, hopelessness to, to heart. I feel bad when I start saying despairing things. So ignore that when I do that. Just, just recognize it's my personality. All right. He also talks about PETA targeting kids to normalize their animal liberation ideology. And now we see the fake meat people also smartly view marketing to younger generation, quote unquote marketing. Why is it quote unquote marketing? It's, it's marketing to younger generations as key to changing long-term consumer thinking. Wow. These, these wily fake meat people. They think that if you market to to young people, that could help your product. (laughs) Oh, lobbyists. Then he starts talking about lab-grown meat, as he likes to call it. And he does to say, he starts off by mentioning this. Suffice to say, activists don't like the name lab-grown meat. Yeah, they don't because it's not lab-grown, for one thing, and because it's more like, you know, brewery-grown. And because people don't like the sound of it. So, of course, we don't like it. And points out that that the support is is currently for cultivated meat or possibly cultured meat. I always get confused as to what what I'm supposed to use. He's all against it, you'll be surprised to hear. And he points out that one of the problems is that it's energy intensive. I don't know whether that's true. It might be true. But, you know, they've also... The, the reason it's energy intensive is because the bioreactors, according to him, use up a lot of energy. But... As he points out, quote, activists have calculated that if lab-grown meat factories are able to use renewable energy, that would allegedly reduce the environmental impact. Well, I I mean, yeah, if you can reuse renewable energy, I don't think there's anything allegedly about it. It reduces your environmental impact. But he says, I say allegedly because there are lots of hidden costs, quote unquote, hidden costs of renewable energy. What does these quotes mean of renewable energy as well as real costs to the infrastructure? Like, you want to expand on that, Rick? <laughs> no. The, uh, renewable energy is better than fossil fuel energy. I just want to, you know, in case you weren't aware of that, just filling that in. The elephant in the room was the unanswered question of whether production of lab meat will be economically viable. I have to say I agree with that one. You know, I still don't know. I sure hope so. And so he concludes by saying, me revealing to consider what wasn't said. Consumer surveys have repeatedly found that people buy fake meat because they think it's healthier for them than real meat. Yet we saw little time devoted to the Achilles heel of fake meat, the fact that it is ultra-processed at a time when many consumers want to avoid highly processed foods. And, you know, as I always point out, it's about processed just as much as meat. One is processed through a bioreactor to turn into a product that is virtually identical to other foods that are processed through the body of a suffering animal. And that's it. Oh, well, that's not it for this week's Rising Anxieties. That's just it for that story from Rick Berman. I need, I need a breath. All right. Now we're going to do a little comedy. 
Tis the season to take advice from a turkey. This is by Christine Alvarado, who wrote, writes the For the Birds column. You can tell Christine's got a good sense of humor, don't you? This is on the Meeting Place uh, site as well. And she's talking about the advice that we could take from turkeys, obviously, from the title. This is what she has to say. This makes me want, like, just be prepared that you might feel a little nauseous while I read this. If you don't know, I love turkeys. My PhD projects were all about turkey meat quality, and I loved raising them. There's nothing better than hearing them gobble when I walked into their pens. They're beautiful birds with a fantastic personality. Like, what's wrong with humans? Like, it, like, like what? And then she says uh, she's going to write her little column, which is going to be, quote-unquote, amusing, as you can tell. Advice from a turkey to start out the holidays on the right foot, or should I say paw? This woman is a poultry scientist. Does she not know that turkeys have feet? They don't have paws. That one just confused. That one just completely confused me. And she has all these cute little things. Always strut your stuff. Gobble till you wobble. This one doesn't need an explanation. Eat that turkey and all the sides. Okay. Be well-dressed. Dressing is cooked separately from the turkey while stuffing is cooked inside the turkey. Food safety tip, make dressing. Yeah, we'll get a little bit more into the food safety in our next column. Uh, you know, and there's all this bullshit. Flock together, stand tall, spread your wings. Blah, blah, blah. Don't let life ruffle your feathers. Let's focus on love and kindness during this holiday season. Yeah, Christine, let's. What exactly would that mean here? I don't know. And she concludes by saying, if you made it this far, I probably am the only person who did, <laughs> to be realistic. Thanks for reading. I appreciate each and every one of you who takes the time to read my blog. I love this industry. She loves the turkeys. She loves the industry. And I love that I get to share a little bit of myself with these blogs. It's not every day. We get to take advice from the center of the plate turkey. Eat turkey and be happy. I'll tell you, this column more than anything just made me feel, you know, I know that there are bad people in the world. And um, we all know that there are good people in the world, you among them. But this just proves to me that people are just completely fucked up. All right. Finally, Food Safe and Sound column by Mindy Brashears, also from Meeting Place. A warning for families gathering for Thanksgiving. Uh, and so she thought she would um, have some fun this month and share some crazy and quite reckless food safety practices I have experienced. Now, as you can imagine, I've never, I don't think I've ever, I think maybe I cooked a turkey once a very long time ago. But, you know, when I was growing up, my parents cooked the turkey and I, I never, you know, even before I discovered the horrible truth, I, I and went vegan, I, I don't think I turkeys regularly. So I, I never would have known any of this was a bad thing, but she thinks, seems to think it's like so obvious. It's almost comical. You may want to avoid gathering with family members bearing these personality types behaviors for the holidays. Like the cold shoulder sister, she thaws the turkey at room temperature or even in warm water in the sink. I didn't know that was bad. Apparently that, you can die. The cross cousin washes the turkey and pours turkey juices into the kitchen sink and fails to disinfect the sink. Can you imagine like it's Thanksgiving morning and, oh, wait, I have to disinfect the sink or the, and the surrounding areas. 
which thus apparently, and it makes sense, contaminates all salads and other products to be consumed. Boy, it's dangerous out there in turkey consumption land. All right, the cooking up troubled twins put the turkey in the oven at night before going to bed. I've heard of this. And turn the oven up to the highest temperature possible for one hour. And then they turn the oven off and do not open the door for eight hours. Apparently, also, that can kill you. The stuffy sibling. I mean, when I was a kid and we had turkey, I'm sorry to mention it, but we did. Like the stuffing was stuffed inside the turkey. Then there was always the extra on the side, which is what I make now. I just don't, it's not on the side of a turkey. These stuffy siblings insist on putting the stuffing inside of the bird. That apparently is incredibly dangerous. I didn't know that people didn't do that anymore. They probably do. Um, The grazing grandpa wants to leave the food out all day for snacking. God forbid we should should snack. Just stuff it in the refrigerator before it turns into poison. That is her advice for the holiday. In all seriousness, she says, we all have family that have some odd food handling habit. These also all seemed like perfectly normal things to me. Well, not normal in the sense that it's not normal to eat dead birds, but you know what I mean. That make us cringe. I hope you all have a safe and healthy holiday. And enjoy spreading food safety tips. Well, you better if you don't want to kill all your relatives if you happen to be eating dead birds. So I know everybody listening is not planning on eating dead birds. So good for you. Hopefully you will survive till Christmas. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising season. We have had a truly epic year and we couldn't have done it without you. We're hoping you'll join us once again to ensure another productive, fabulous year for our hen house. And the best part is that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled dollar for dollar if we reach our goal of $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our amazing barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we are hoping to raise $60,000 total for end of year. That's our main fundraiser of the year. So it's kind of a big, gigantic deal for us. And we can't do it without you. The only way we'll receive the matching funds is if we successfully reach our goal of raising $20,000 from our loyal supporters and listeners, that's you, by the end of the year. Huge or modest, every donation counts and will help us reach our goal. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private flock Facebook group, and an invitation to flock first Friday Zoom meetings, plus the opportunity to have a one-on-one Zoom meeting with me to talk about anything activism related. And if you donate $100 or more, I'm going to send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. So if you appreciate our hen house and if you appreciate our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and our resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be tripled if we get to that 20,000. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Again, that's ourhenhouse.org slash donate. 
Another great way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Across the board, we are at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. Tell your enemies about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so very much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast. Thanks to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast. I'm looking at you, Eric Montgomery, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We'd also love to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We're going to be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer and let's change the world for animals. <laughs>